Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Welcome to the New Books on Alcohol, Drugs, and Intoxicants, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jen Wang. This podcast features conversations and discussions with scholars and experts across diverse fields on the recently published books about substance use. My goal for this podcast is to bridge the gap between academic and public knowledge on drugs and their implications for individuals and societies. For more information about the podcast, please go to newbooksandalcoholdrugsintoxicants.com or follow us on Tumblr at New Books and Drugs. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Carlo De Clemente um, with us today to talk about his new book. Dr. Carlo De Clemente is a presidential research professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He also serves as the director of the Health and Addictive Behaviors Lab at UMBC. So his new book, Substance Abuse, Treatment, and the Stages of Change, Selecting and Planning Interventions, examines the latest research on the stages of change model in treating substance abuse and drug addiction. Grounded in cutting-edge theory and research, this volume is an ideal guide for practitioners and professionals who treat substance abuse across a broad range of settings. So welcome, Dr. Um, DeClemente. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jennifer. Glad to be here. Um, so can we start off um, by you telling us a little bit about um, your research and academic trajectory and how you came to study what you're studying currently? 
Sure. Um, when I was in uh, graduate school, actually, I got started uh, research working on uh, smoking cessation. And so I kind of uh, started looking at addictive behaviors, and that became a real interest of mine. At the same time, we were trying to look at a, a model for looking at how do people change and looking across different kinds of therapy theories and trying to figure out how, uh, how, how all of it fit together. So we came up with what we call the trans-theoretical model. A lot of times it's referred to as the stages of change model because it's got stages of change in it, which really kind of thinks about the process of change. So we began working and researching in that. We've done work in uh, smoking. I've done work in alcohol. I ran an alcoholism treatment clinic. And I've been using this model to try and help inform uh, the clinical work that we do and help even some of the self-change work. So we have a book, Changing for Good, uh, that actually is uh, a book for lay people to kind of learn how to learn the model and learn how to apply it in their own lives. Uh, so that's that was 30-some uh, years ago, and I'm still kind of working on that and, uh, and, and working to kind of help professionals and help individuals uh, kind of work their way through this process of change. Uh, we do health behaviors, but we also do addictive behaviors. Okay, that's great. Oh, yeah, and before I forget, um, congratulations on your Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, last November, right? Uh, yes, it was last November. The the addiction group at the uh, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy uh, was very nice and, and awarded me that. That's great. Yeah, congratulations! It's awesome. Um, so, do you mind talking a little bit about the different stages that you described in your model? No, that'd be great. Um, so, the stages idea used to be that that when people thought about coming into treatment you had to bring your readiness with you, okay? So most of the time, people say, well, you know, uh, if you're motivated, come to treatment. If you're not motivated, get out until you're motivated. Mm -hmm. So what we did with the stages model was to say, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of parts of this process that we need to be thinking about, not just action and what you can do once you're motivated, but what about pre-action? And so in the pre-action piece of this model, we have uh, three stages, one stage called pre-contemplation, where the person just isn't thinking that, it, that they really want to change in the near term. So in some ways we ask, you know, are you seriously thinking about quitting smoking in the next six months? If somebody says no to that, they're uh, in pre-contemplation. Mm -hmm. So then we have, once you say yes, you still have to kind of say, okay, well, we're, so now you're in contemplation. You're thinking about doing it. Uh, and and in pre-contemplation, the challenge is getting people interested and concerned enough to move into thinking about it and, and making some kind of a risk-reward analysis, a cost-benefit analysis, doing some of the decision-making work that that once you do that, you're, you're, you finish the contemplation stage. Mm -hmm. So contemplation is a stage of decision-making. And then the third stage is really preparation. Even after you've made a de decision, you still have tasks to do. You've got to think about what's, the, what's my level of commitment to doing this. And so you have to increase commitment and you have to develop a plan. So what you want to try and do during that is really develop a, a, what I call an effective, accessible, and acceptable plan. Something that you know can work, you can access all the things you need to make that plan work, 
uh, and you can, uh, it's acceptable to you. Because uh, I think a lot of plans that people are given aren't often acceptable. Mm. So those are the three uh, pre-action stages. And then you move into action where you start kind of implementing the plan. You start making the change. Um, and you're trying to build a new habit. That's what the action stage is really kind of getting you to create a new pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. So if it was using cocaine in action, what I'm trying not to do is to not use cocaine, but also to build a life that keeps cocaine on the sidelines. Uh, and, and a lot of times the plans that we build to do that don't always work. So one of the key things in action is to revise. Make sure you revise the plan when you need to do so because um, otherwise what people normally do is if the plan isn't working, what do people normally do with the change? Just give up. They give up. And so instead of revising the plan, they throw out the change. So the action stage, one of the key tasks is really staying with it, sticking with it, building your self-confidence, overcoming obstacles. If you slip, kind of getting right back on and kind of not, not uh, allow that to, to kind of disrupt the whole process until you really create, and we think this takes maybe three to six months, mm-hmm. until you really create a new pattern of behavior. And then the final stage kicks in where now the challenge is to sustain that over time, mm-hmm. to make sure that now this is becoming not something that I have to work so hard to do, but something that's becoming normal. So you, you create a new normal, um, you know, where now my life, I live my life, I, I enjoy doing this, I enjoy doing that, and cocaine's not a part of it. Mm-hmm. Or I, I, you know, if it's smoking, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying myself. I'm kind of breathing, exercising, doing other kind of things. And smoking is now not a part of it. And you're not thinking about smoking all the time. You're not really having to put a whole lot of effort in. You still have to put in effort, though. You still have to avoid relapse. Uh, there's always a challenge to going back if something dramatic happens. Um so the maintenance stage is really kind of sustaining change and, and, and making it become uh, an integral part of your lifestyle. Okay. And are individuals, would you say they're in maintenance for life? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't think of it that way. We have another piece where I think that it's not a stage of change, but it's an exit. So I talk about people being in termination. Mm-hmm. So... Once you've maintained it for a long time where you're no longer thinking about it, you're totally confident, you have uh, no temptation, essentially, to, to go back, you're in, you've terminated the process of change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and why that's important is that there's, <clears throat> we have a lot of things we've got to change. Mm-hmm. And change takes effort. Mm-hmm. So you you have to kind of terminate a few things so you can actually move on and do some of the others um, that you need to change. So, for example, I'm I'm quit smoking for, oh gosh, 20, uh, more than 20 years, 25 oh, years or something like that. Yeah, so, so I, I smoked for 10 years, but I'm quit for... 20, 25 years. I'm, I'm not in maintenance anymore. I'm in termination. Mm-hmm. And the difference for me is 
for me now, I could go back to cigarettes before any quicker than anybody else who hasn't done it. Mm-hmm. But for me, it would be more like kind of a reinitiation rather than a relapse. Reinitiation. So differentiating so, between reinitiation and relapse. Right. Mm-hmm. Because now I would have to kind of go through the stages of initiation. Mm-hmm. We also have the stages of initiation as well as the stages of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to go through those stages somewhat and and kind of get convinced that it's a good idea. Uh, make a decision that okay, I'm going to try and start again, and then kind of go in and start messing with it, and then finally get hooked by nicotine again and and um, move on. So. That's where I think um, the distinction has to be why I make a distinction between relapse and and, um, and and reinitiation and the distinction between maintenance and termination. Okay. Yeah, I think these dis- distinctions are really important to mm-hmm. um, kind of differentiate too. And also, I'm curious as to um, what you think about how to best define the target goal of the behavioral change. So... I know a lot of times um, people advocate total abstinence, you know, when it comes to alcohol or drug use, um, but there's also some harm reduction kind of programs. So would that be something that would be considered an ideal outcome as well? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. So uh, in, in the book, we talk about both of those. When you think about the stages of change, the stages are really uh, behavior specific. Mm-hmm. So, if I am thinking about cutting down on things uh, versus stopping them, I could be in different stages for the two different goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and a lot of times you are. I mean, if I'm in action for cutting down on alcohol and and think I'm uh, this is my goal, I'm going to really kind of moderate my drinking. I'm going to never excessively drink. I'm going to do this. Then I'm usually in pre-contemplation for abstinence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really how I think about it. It really depends on the goal the individual wants and how I'm going to work towards it. Now, I believe harm reduction is a really good thing, mm-hmm. uh, but oftentimes it's not as stable as abstinence. Not stable. Okay. Uh, because, you know, anytime, so, so here's my view is really about harm reduction actually takes more self-regulation sometimes than abstinence, mm-hmm. because I still I'm I'm engaging in the behavior all the time, and now I have to keep watching myself. I have to moderate. I have to kind of make sure that I'm not going to excess. So I'm really working hard to make sure that I have this under self-regulatory control. Mm. Yeah, it, that makes and, sense. Yeah. So in abstinence, a lot of times you can. You can almost forget about, you know, I don't drink anymore. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to worry about it. I mean, if I say I don't drink anymore, then I, you know, people say, you want to drink? No, I don't drink. Um, and so there isn't the, uh, the, 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 the struggle. I mean, there's still temptation to drink and there's still all those kind of things. So I'm not saying it's always easier, but what I'm saying is sometimes it requires a little less. Once you kind of are, have a lifestyle now that does not include drinking, you can move on and you can do other things and, you know, you just are, it, it's it's part of your lifestyle not to drink and not to order drinks and not to be in bars and in places where you go to drink. 
um, and that's protective. Uh, but if I'm still going to bars and still doing all those things and need to keep working on doing the reduction, it takes a little more effort, energy, and, and vigilance mm-hmm. to do that. So I think there's different goals. Uh, and, and, you know, that's where the challenge is, I think, between the harm reduction and the, uh, and the abstinence. Um, people can get back in, and some of them have been successful in doing harm reduction and doing that for years and years and years um, after they've had a significant problem uh, being able to do that. Others, they just are not successful doing that harm reduction thing until they actually get to, to going, you know, I think I need to, to stop this completely. Mm. Yeah, so also different outcomes as well. Um, I think that's important to address too, I think, in treatment, because I think a lot of times um, the clinicians might advocate one perspective, you know, so maybe complete abstinence, but maybe the client's not completely ready yet. For that. Well, that's the issue, and again, that's part of the book is really you've got to be on the same page with your client if you're going to work with them. I mean, you can believe that abstinence is the best thing for this client, but if this client is totally convinced that all they're going to do is reduce, mm-hmm. and you're going to push them to, to, to abstain, then what you're going to get is a lot of resistance because they're in pre-contemplation for abstaining. They're in preparation or action for reducing. So you're going to say, no, that's not good enough. You're going to have to go back. And so you're going to go into the pre-contemplation piece, and you have to then move them forward and get them interested and concerned enough that maybe I do need to quit completely. Mm -hmm. So you've got a selling job to do, whereas you have less of a selling job to do if you're going to stay with their goal of reducing. And again, if if, if, if they get a sense that you're criticizing their goal, a lot of times you're going to get some more resistance or you're going to get some sense of, wait a minute, uh, I I can't work with you because you don't don't believe what I'm saying. You don't understand understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think throughout the book, um, you guys made a really good case for stating that, you know, it really is the client's perspective, you know, in the end, that's the most important one in the treatment process. Well, yeah, because I think, and, and that's again reflected in the book, that the the mechanisms of change, from my perspective, are in the client. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really great to have good therapies and effective therapies, and that's really important, and we teach good skills and whatever, but the, the person has got to go out and live these, so the, the mechanisms of change aren't really in the therapies, they're in the client. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's one of the key elements, I think, of the transferatical model and the and, and the book in terms of how we're, we're looking at it. So what you're always trying to do is engage those important processes of change, the mechanisms that they need to use to accomplish the task to move forward in the process. And, and if you're fighting them, then th- those processes, those mechanisms, aren't getting engaged and, and working. They're, they're now now focused on fighting you or going against you not on moving forward in the change process. Yeah, and I think it's this is actually important to address too. I think because a lot of times you have court mandated, um, you know, uh, substance abuse treatment where a lot of times the people might not really want to change, but they have to by the court. Um, well, they don't have to change. 
they have to stop what they're doing sometimes, okay? And that's something that, again, we have uh, talked about a little bit in the book, but also it's important to, we've done some research on. People can stop behaviors without changing them. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And that's, I think, an important realization um, that we learned, actually, with pregnant women smokers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, a number of women, when they're pregnant, quit smoking. And we go, okay, well, gosh, they really quit smoking, and that's really great. And they're off for like six months or eight months. And then after they give birth, the relapse rates are as almost the same as if you kind of had people who had just quit the day before. Yeah, that's crazy. So you kind of go, so we did a study, and I said, you know, these aren't these people aren't quitting. They're only stopping. So when we think about, I mean, there used to be pregnancy smoking cessation. So we wrote an article called Pregnancy Smoking Cessation, A Case of Mistaken Identity. Because these women did not look like women who were trying to quit. They were not using the processes. They were totally confident. And the reason for not smoking during the pregnancy was about 95% for the baby. Not for themselves, for the baby. Not for themselves, for the baby. Mm-hmm. So postpartum, they can protect the baby in other ways. So they would always say, oh, no, I'm still protecting the baby. <clears throat> I'm, I'm smoking outside. I don't smoke in the room with the baby. Um, I go away and smoke over here, but I needed to manage my stress, and I needed to manage all the other things. So basically what they, what they did, most of them we're really just putting their smoking on hold. And, you know, people do the same thing with drinking. I mean, a lot of people on probation go, I'm not drinking. Oh, so you quit drinking. No, I'm not drinking for the next six months because I'm on probation. Hmm. And if they catch me, I'm going to get in big trouble. So people can do that. I mean, we think that's not possible with addictions, and sometimes that's, that's true. I mean, sometimes people are are so obsessed and so um, driven by the desire to kind of use that they can't even stop for a few days. Yeah. But, but most people, if, if you give them a convincing reason, they'll stop for a little bit of time, especially if there's some serious consequences related to it. Um, but the people who can't stop are probably the people who are the most dependent. Yeah. And, and have the largest problems, of course. So even with a mandated client coming in, you still have a choice, and they still have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, we're doing drug courts now, uh, and, you know, people are kind of screened and said, okay, you're eligible for drug court, which means you have to kind of meet with the judge on a regular basis and go to treatment and come back, and we have a probation officer, and we have a a treatment provider and we all meet and talk about you. Mm-hmm. And uh, But you don't have to go to jail. Mm-hmm. There's a number of people who choose jail. So, nah, that sounds a little too complicated. I'm going to go to jail. How long is jail? Three months. Okay, I'll, I'll do my three months and I'll get out. <laughs> so even with mandated, you sometimes have choices. And I think the challenge for the for the provider is to kind of try and engage the person in their personal process of change. And and you 
not to believe that the mandated change is change, but to get there, the person to make the change for themselves. So more intrinsic than extrinsic. Exactly. Exactly. That makes sense. So, which stage do you think might be the hardest, or um, client, both clients and therapists have the most difficulties with? Do you think? Oh, I think um, I think it's contemplation. Really? Yeah. Well, because that's where I mean, you know, all of the MI, the motivational interviewing kind of work, uh, talks about ambivalence because that's the hardest thing for therapists to deal with, hmm. and you know. People are ambivalent. People are, you have reasons on both sides. People kind of, even after they decide one week, the next week, they're kind of going, oh, I'm not sure that that's really what I want to do. Um, so I do think that contemplation is one of the hardest stages because people can stay in contemplation for long periods of time. Um even if they make a, a, a brief foray into action, they oftentimes slide back into contemplation and kind of end up back there for a while. You know, they try it, they make a half-hearted attempt, and they go, oh, well, it's really hard for me. So then they go back, and it's, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'd really like to not be smoking or using heroin, but but I don't know. It's just such a... It, 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 it just grabs me. I mean, it's just so much part of my life. I'm not sure I can really give it up. Yeah. Um, so, so I do think that's some of the most frustrating parts for the provider because, you know, sometimes as soon as the provider hears, well, I really, you know, I'd really like to give it up. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, they get all excited and go, oh, they're really ready to change. I'm going, no, no, they just, that, that's just a, that's a desire. Don't get too excited. They have to, you have to kind of wait and make sure that you got the rest of that on there and, and that they're making a really good decision so that that will be able to support commitment. And that's what you're really looking at is, and we have been doing some research there, strength of commitment is really important, but that's really supported by a solid decision. And, and so, so that's, I mean, yeah, sounds strange sometimes. Yeah. So it sounds like there's successful um, completing all the tasks in specific stages are needed before you can really move on to the next stage. So to speak. I think that's true. I mean, I do think that people can sometimes move quickly through these stages uh, and be successful. I also think sometimes people rush and and go, you know, from pre-contemplation, somebody goes, you know, look, you just got a DUI. They go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm really going to, I'm, I'm quitting drinking. Yeah. That's it. I got a DUI. I'm going to quit drinking. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. And they rush through, but they really haven't made a decision. The decision is all based on the extrinsic kinds of reasons. They really don't. I mean, they have a commitment not to get in trouble, but I'm not sure this commitment is actually to, to stop drinking or to modify their drinking in a way that it's not problematic. Mm-hmm. So they rush forward and then they relapse and then they kind of go, well, see, I can't do it. Well, if you don't have each of the tasks done well enough, I think that's what happens when you relapse. And, and the beauty of the relapse piece is relapse isn't a stage. Relapse is an event. Yeah, you talk about that in the book. Can you explain a little bit on, on that? So... 
we we used to think about rebounds as a stage, but as we looked at the folks, the uh, the the numbers and the kind of attitudes and stuff just never matched up that they were totally a separate group. Mm-hmm. When people relapse, what happens to them is they go back into one of the earlier stages. So, so I'm trying to quit cocaine and then I start using again. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I start using again, but the question then becomes, well, where are you now about quitting smoke, quitting cocaine? And so some people go back into pre-contemplation and say, well, I'll tell you what, I mean, I tried, I can't do it, it's impossible for me, I'm not even thinking about quitting. Mm-hmm. Other people will go back in and say, you know, I know it's good for me, I failed this time, it's not clear to me that I can do it, but, but I'm still thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And they're back in contemplation. Mm-hmm. Some other people will kind of go back and say, you know, I, I, I really screwed up this time. I know it. I'm going to really make a firm decision, and, and I need to figure out exactly what's a better plan. My plan wasn't that good, so I'm going to just get back on, build a better plan, and move forward. And those people are in preparation. So what we call is this is there's a recycling process. People go from relapse back and cycle back into some of the early stages, and, and I think part of that's making sure you get all the tasks done well enough. Mm-hmm. If they're not done well enough, you're going to trip somewhere down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people think about it, oh, well, it's really, it's really about the, uh, the action. I mean, people found that got a cue in action that they just couldn't deal with. Mm-hmm. Somebody came up to them and said, you know, you want to use, here, i got some cocaine. Don't you want to use it? And he'll say, oh, see, that's what happened. They were pressured into doing it. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think that's the whole story. I think that was the occasion, and they did get some pressure, but the decision wasn't firm enough. The commitment wasn't firm enough. The plan wasn't good enough for them to really say no. So when you go back, you got to go through that again and and get it all right. And I think that's really what the challenge is for the process of change for all of us. That's true for exercise. It's true for diet. It's true for cocaine. It's true for um, uh, smoking. Yeah, and it sounds like people can really swing between these different um, attitudes a lot of times. So they can be really committed you know, on Monday that they really really, really do want to quit completely. But then maybe by Wednesday, kind of go back into ambivalence and think, well, maybe not completely, right? It seems like that's one of the difficulties too. Right. No, I think there's, so what I say is there's regression. People go forward, but they also go backwards. Mm -hmm. Um, There's recycling. Um, And then there's also kind of just being stuck. (laughs) So some people kind of just get stuck in a stage. Mm-hmm. So some people just stay in pre-contemplation. They go, no, I'm not thinking about it. I don't think I want to do it. I'm not thinking about it. They get a lot of pressure, but they kind of go, nope, I'm not doing it. And uh, they just stick there and, and hang out there. And sometimes they hang out there for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, others hang out in contemplation. We did a study, and one of our first studies was following uh, groups of smokers in these different st- who started out in these different stages, and and one group we followed them for two years, 
one group that actually was a pretty sizable group of folks who started out in contemplation stayed in contemplation the whole two years. Wow. Every time they said, I'm seriously thinking about quitting in the next six months, <clears throat> they didn't do anything. The next six months, we'd say, are you seriously thinking about it? they say, yes, I'm seriously thinking about quitting smoking in the next six months. So they were always thinking about it, but they couldn't get beyond that. So we, we called that group the chronic contemplators mm-hmm. because they, they, they do seem to get stuck. And that's true for a lot of people. You know, I mean, look around at your friends. How many people say, you know, I know I should really do, I mean, I really want to do more exercise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am, I'm thinking about doing some exercise stuff. Mm-hmm. And next year, there come the uh, January 1st and New Year's resolution. <laughs> now, I'm really, I, I, this year, I'm really going to do more exercise. This is where I'm going to go and, and do more exercise. And sometimes they try and, and don't always get through. And sometimes they don't even try. They never really get to the gym. They never get to the action criterion. If you think about action of going to the gym three days a week or walking uh, after supper for at least three nights a week or something like that, even though they wanted to do it, they're in, they, they're interested in doing it, they never really kind of get to, to actually complete that behavior. Yeah, and do you think that's because of a lack of commitment or a weak commitment? commitment or is it more that they just don't know how. You know what I mean? I feel like a lot of times people, when it comes to the new year, they seem really, really, really motivated to to do it this once. Like once and for all, they're going to start exercising in the morning, you know? Yeah. Well, again, I think motivation is not a single dimension. Motivation has a lot of components to it. Mm -hmm. So I do think they're motivated in the sense that they've got a desire to do this. Mm Mm-hmm. They want to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they think they need to do this. Uh, so there, there's a variety of things that they they believe about themselves, but they don't necessarily get to the firm decision that says, "No, this is really in my best interest." I really that the costs really the the benefits really outweigh the costs. Uh, I'm going to make a firm decision and do this and then have the level of commitment to follow through. And, yeah. and, and the commitment to follow through is really a commitment to deal with all the reasons why not to do this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> there's a lot. You, know, you, go, you go, hey, there's a lot of them. Because you go in and you go, okay, I'm not feeling well today. Now you got to keep going. Oh, well, today is, uh, you know, I mean, this week I'm really busy at work. I've got to work until 7 o'clock at night. Doesn't matter. You got to find some time to get in there and go exercise, even if it's walking around. So you, you've got to be able to overcome all of those obstacles, and that's why you need that kind of commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, down the road, I mean, people say, "Oh, you'll feel better when you when you're when you exercise," but that's not really true. <laughs> the first days that you exercise, you don't feel better. Right. <laughs> you're usually sore. You know, other kind of stuffs happening, and so. You know, you need a lot of commitment to get over that. Otherwise, you give up. You go, wait a minute. I didn't think it was going to be this hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's really, you know, what's happening. So so that's why people are trying to engineer around change. So that's why you have diets now that say, no, here we'll provide you with the food. Right. <laughs> but you can only eat one of these. Okay. <laughs> you can't eat all of these. You got this. 
this is your dinner, this is your lunch, um, so that you don't have any free choice. So the less choice you have, they figure the more the better off the better possibility is that you will stay eating what you're supposed to eat. Mm-hmm. Probably not gonna last long, realistically. Well, I think at some point you've got to be making choice. Either you've got to stay eating what they give you, or you're going to have to figure out how to do it on your own. And and that's the reason that we know. So in the book, we talk a little bit about individual therapy, group therapy. We talk about settings, so inpatient, residential, and and you know, the good thing is when people really need a lot of support, residential. Uh, inpatient uh, therapeutic communities, all of those are really important. But your stay inside those places where you're protected has got to teach you about what to do outside. Yeah. In the real world kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, you, you're, you can get really confident when you're in the hospital, and we saw that in some of our research. People get really confident. They have high self-efficacy. I'm going to really do this. And then they go out, and their confidence plummets because in the real world, when you're facing all the cues and all the situations that are there, it, it's a lot harder to be confident. Uh, and you may not be prepared for some of the temptations and the, the cues that are going to come your way. Yeah. So it sounds like there really has to be a very comprehensive and detailed plan to kind of um, foresee these possible scenarios outside the treatment center, the treatment situation. I think that's true for a lot of people. I mean, I do think that most people need a, a, a good plan of how I'm going to go about doing this and how I'm going to deal with, uh, you know, Uncle George, who drinks a lot when I'm around him, and that kind of is a cue for me to kind of start drinking again and getting back on this or, uh, you know, this kind of situation or that kind of situation. So I do think that the planning is, is important. You can't be naive and go out and say, okay, well, I'm just going to quit and that's going to be it. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's going to be a lot of challenges out there to your change. Yeah. So you, you really do need like a really strong plan or really strong commitment. And I think you said in the book that uh, even though commitment is really important and you know the commitment to follow through is really important on the action plan, um, a lot of times clinicians are not really given a lot of training in that aspect. Um, is that right? That's true. I think, uh, you know, commitment enhancement is not something that we really are taught a lot. We're taught a lot of the, we were taught some decision-making stuff. We're taught some things about action. But but really, how do you create commitment is a, is a challenge because that is, I mean, the commitment is obviously the task of the, of the client, of the person making the change. Mm-hmm. But, but how do you actually enhance commitment um, is not something that we're taught a lot. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's something that, that's a little weakness in the training piece. Yeah. And when I, so when I'm training my students now, we kind of, we're looking at some of the social psychological literature on persuasion, mm-hmm. trying to think about that as commitment enhancing. Um, we look at, you know, what are some, indicators of commitment so Mm -hmm. we talk about commitment language can you make a distinction between the kind of language the person's using to find that commitment and and measure that commitment um 
we I actually uh, when I talk to clinicians I say you know you actually go go to your car salesman and and learn how to increase commitment because <laughs> those are the people who really that's what their job is they live on uh, creating commitment from people who are somewhat ambivalent mm-hmm. right I mean everybody goes into the car I don't know if I really want this one I don't know if I really want that one I don't know oh that's too much money and and they have a lot of techniques to try and get people to kind of make a decision mm-hmm. and help them to kind of come to decision making and, and, and committing to kind of writing it writing down and writing a check and, and doing the kind of things that says, okay, I'm signing this contract. Yeah. Hey, that's, a, that's a pretty strong commitment right there. Yeah, following through with it, I think, yeah. Yeah. So do you think self-regulation plays a role in that as well, in um, commitment to follow through? Oh, sure. I think self-regulation plays a role in all of these um, pieces of the, of the change process. Um, you know, if someone really has still pretty intact self-regulation and, and, you know, I think, I think self-regulation is several things. I mean, we talk about it as kind of executive cognitive functioning. So people who have kind of decision-making kind of, uh, intact decision-making, pretty good, solid decision-making processes that seem to work. We talk about affect regulation. Mm -hmm because that's certainly one of the things that, that addicts are not really good at a lot of times, meaning mm-hmm. that they lose affective regulation control uh, either before or, if, if not, while you're using drugs, because the drugs kind of hijack the, the the pleasure centers, and so it makes it more difficult to regulate your, your affect. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly another piece. And then the self-control mechanisms. I mean, the ability to kind of manage yourself to say, no, I'm not doing this, to be able to get the strength to kind of resist the temptation. So all of those, I think, are really important pieces as you go along. I mean, if you've got a lot of impairment in in your executive cognitive functioning, the decision-making process is weak. Mm -hmm. Um, If, you know, you have a lot of affective turmoil, it's hard to build commitment. Right. If you know you're really kind of over here, I'm I'm totally depressed. I'm totally anxious. I'm totally you know, it, it's really hard when you're at that when you're experiencing that those extreme levels and you can't modulate those levels of affect to build commitment or do planning or other kinds of things like that. Um and and so all along the way I think that that whole self-regulation piece plays a role. Yeah. Cause you know, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of times, a lot of the people who do abuse um, substances or who have problems with substances probably already have some problems with self-regulation in the first place, you know? So I think it's probably even more difficult for them um, to have to exert um, the self-regulation during treatment as well. So, right. Yeah, this commitment piece, I guess, is um, especially something that I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that's true. Yeah, and do you think um, virgin quitters, so you know, quitters that have never really quit before, um, have a harder time moving from 
um, the first stage, you know, pre-complication to the next stage compared to chronic quitters. So quitters that um, have quit many, many times before, but it relapse every single time. Do you think, which group do you think might have an easier time or harder time? Well, it's interesting. If you think about the, the, the modal kind of response, I mean, uh, very few people actually quit the first time they try. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know whether that's because they're not totally convinced, there haven't been enough consequences yet, <clears throat> or they're just not, they don't, they think it's going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, oh, I'm going to quit doing this. And then they realize, oh, it isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Um, so I do think that the, the, the first attempt a lot of times is n- not always going to work out and, and for a lot of people. I think there are some people who maybe, um, you know, they, they experience a very dramatic ex- ex- consequence and that just kind of moves them through this process even though it's the first time. It moves them through the process so quickly and so substantively that they go, that's it. But I think you know, the people who have the hardest times are the people who are constantly recycling. Yeah, that makes sense. Who, who are going and trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing. And, and a lot of times with those people, there's something else going on. So I think it's a failure of the process to some degree, but it may also be that there's other, there are other problems interfering. So for substance use, for example, <clears throat> people who who try and fail, try and fail, try and fail, and doesn't look like, I mean, I, I see relapse and recycling as a learning process. Mm-hmm. And, and with these folks, it doesn't look like they're learning anything. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of going around in circles. Mm-hmm. Repeating, yeah. Yeah. So once you have somebody doing that, you have to stop and step back and kind of go, wait a minute, what's happening? And a, a lot of times, in substance area, you find out, whoa, there's a mental health problem here. Hmm. And that's really interfering with the process and it's interfering with the success and we need to treat the mental health problem as well. Otherwise, we may not, they're both so integrated and, and so yeah, complicated, they're, they're mutually complicating conditions that you've got to really work at kind of getting both, of, dealing with both of them. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we come up with dual diagnosis treatment. Because people say, okay, well, you, you got to deal with both of these things. You can't, if you deal with just one, you're not, you're not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when people are just kind of spinning their wheels or kind of going in circles, um, I think there's something else going on. Or there's something in the context of their lives. Maybe their environment. I mean, they're trying to get off, and then every time they go back into this environment, it's it's so heavily saturated with cocaine or heroin or alcohol or tobacco that it's almost impossible to kind of stay stay clean. Yeah. So relapse could be a learning experience, but it could also be a sign that something something is wrong. Something needs to be addressed. Yes, yes I think multiple relapses are certainly a sign if they're relapsing over and over again that somebody needs to take a bigger picture look. Um, somebody needs to kind of step back and, and look at the whole the whole person and the whole environment. You should be doing that anyway, but, but a lot of times you miss some things. Yeah, 
people kind of get a little bit too focused sometimes they think on the details or something um yeah mm-hmm. yeah and you know i found it really interesting that um uh, even though we have all these different kinds of treatment you know you have aa you have um harm reduction all these different kinds but it seems like these different types of treatments kind of influenced um, the whole process of change in a very similar way. Yeah, it does seem like there's some, I mean, I see the process of change as the common pathway. Mm-hmm. So that's the individual path that the, that, that, that's the path that the individual needs to go through. Everybody goes through it a little bit differently. They go through it in different ways. And that treatment really works to facilitate that process of change. To, to kind of get that process of change activated, uh, moving forward, doing some of those kind of things that that I think is really um, important to there. But it doesn't look like there's only one way to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the real challenge. Um, you could probably do this in a number of ways. I mean... You know, it may be that, you know, that you go to 12-step and I go to well, rational recovery or you go to CBT and I go to an MET program. Mm-hmm. So we did run that. We did that with Project Match. We ran three different treatments, mm-hmm. very different treatments. But the outcomes were very similar. So I I think it's, it's you know, well, there's, you know what I said. One one thing. You know there are different strokes for different folks, but they all seem to be swimming in the same stream. So they're all kind of moving along that same stream, but different. There's different influences that seem to move them along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it seems like people sometimes are very divided. You know, you have different camps where, um, you know, the smart recovery people really um, hate the whole AA model and like vice versa. And I think you hear a lot of. Um, these debates all the time about which ones are really effective and which ones are like a waste of time. Um, when in reality, it seems like it might be more um, efficient to kind of put aside these differences and focus on how they kind of um, change the individual, so to speak, um, through these common pathways. Yeah. Well, someone much wiser than I uh, said, you know, the, the either or is always a challenge that there's wisdom in the both and. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I think why practitioners need to adhere to some one thing that they do and that they get good at is, is probably important for them because they have to have some grounding. They need a focus and they need something that they believe in that they can teach their clients. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's good. Um, but when you get rigid about that and say, you know, but it's only this way that you can do this, I think there's enough evidence to say out there that's not really true. That there's lots of different ways that people can get, can make this change. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are using alternative medicine. I mean, I had one anchor uh, who was doing a TV program with us on the smoking cessation down in Houston kind of said, well, I'm kind of embarrassed to say how I quit smoking. <laughs> said, well, why? Why? He said, well, actually, somebody put a staple in my ear and, and I quit. <laughs> and I quit smoking. He goes, I know there's not very much evidence for this, uh, but for me, it worked. 
And I was like, well, that, that's true. I mean, you know, uh, you know, but what is that? That's somebody who's committed enough to making this change that they went and allowed somebody to put staples in their ear. Yeah. So, and they believe that this is going to help overcome craving. And so basically, they have a support. They go out, they make this, they are, they're committed to making this change. This thing gives them some support and some sense of confidence that they can really overcome all kinds of cravings. And they go and they become successful. Yeah. So, but, but for me, it's the person who's making the change, not necessarily the, the treatment. Because every treatment also has its failures. Right, yeah. So you say, oh, well, that treatment's a failure. Yeah, based on those people, it didn't work this time for those people. <laughs> and, and, and what's funny is that every program wants to be the last treatment that the person gets. Right, of course. Because <laughs> then they say, oh, we're a success. Mm-hmm. But the, the issue is the person's a success, not necessarily the, 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 the program helped that person achieve that success. So we should be proud of ourselves for helping that person, but we shouldn't take all the credit. Right. It really comes down to the person, to the individual person in the end. Mm-hmm. But don't you think it's also important to kind of differentiate between, I just feel like there's a lot of, um, Kind of, kind of the pseudoscience kind of right, right, like quackery kind of. Um, there's so many like uh, groups out there that are trying to cure these people of addiction disorders, and a lot of times I think they're really dangerous, even if yeah, they do so believe I, it. Yeah, people want to separate people from their money, not from their addiction. Right. <laughs> uh, so yes, you do have to be really careful about that. I would really be careful looking at the credentials of the group looking at what they do, uh, looking up to what they do, get listed in kind of a best practices kind of lists of things that people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are things out there. I mean, there are a lot of reviews that look at best practices. Um, and, you know, find a practitioner who's, you know, good, but and, and, and solid and is using uh, acceptable practices um, that you can also work with mm-hmm. and that that's critical. Uh, but you do have to be careful. I mean, people have used, you know, hospitalized people who didn't need hospitalization just because they wanted 28 days of that person's coverage. So you do have to be careful about that, and I would say everybody has to be kind of skeptical uh, but if you look around and you do your homework in terms of there's a lot of stuff you can find online, uh, some of the information is good, some of it's not so good, but I would keep looking for more objective uh, kinds of reports, uh, just like you do for consumer reports on your uh, on looking for cars or something like that, uh, looking for treatment programs. Yeah, I think one of the challenges really is... Um trying to get the general public to understand um, the implications of your research, you know, to make them aware of um, programs that are based on research. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think that's important to address as well. Um, Cause so many people are suffering, you know, even they just want to stop, but it's really hard sometimes that they can't find a f- actually effective treatment. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and do you have any, um, 
I guess, last concluding remarks um, that you want our listeners to take away from? I mean, the book is very, it's very com- comprehensive. <laughs> so maybe not just one message, but if you have to say. Right. I mean, again, I think that, you know, I think the message in the book or the book's content is tailor your treatments to your clients, uh, to the client's motivation, to the client's characteristics, to the client's context, how, where they live and how they live and do that. And and if you're doing that, I think you're at least helping them engage in this process of change. And that's really what, what, the, what the, the solution is really the that engaging that personal process of change and helping people be successful. Mm-hmm. And are you optimistic um, about people's ability to really change <laughs> in general? Oh, you, uh, yes. Well, I am. Uh, I, I do smoking cessation research. And when mm-hmm. people say people don't change addictions, I have data. Uh, so I say, <laughs> you know, uh, wait a minute. Uh, we were 42% of the population smoked in 1964 and only 19 or 18% smoke now. There are 45 million, something like that, people in the United States who quit, quit nicotine addiction. Wow, yeah. So when you, if I give you those numbers, you can't tell me that people can't quit addictions. And, and that's true. Is it hard? Yes. Do some people not quit and die before they quit? Yes. Uh, but do people change? Yes. There's a whole recovery community out there that's strong and, and, and vibrant and filled with people with the courage to change. So even though it seems like it really is, it is a lot of work. <laughs> you know, it is a lot, it of, is a lot of work. There's a lot of failure. I thought there's also a lot of success. And I think we focused on the failure and not the success part of it. Definitely. Yeah. And we've given addictions a bad rap. I mean, we think relapse is part of addictions, but it's actually part of behavior change. There's as many people who fail diets who fail, as who fail quitting cocaine. Yeah. Actually, more. <laughs> okay, diets are, diets are really bad. Uh, there's people who fail doing exercise, you know, uh, more than people who fail quitting cigarettes or alcohol. Mm-hmm. So relapse is a process, is a problem of, of change, not a problem of addictions. That's a really important message, I think. Yeah. Well, um, do you want to talk a little bit before we run out of time about what you're working on um, next or what you're working on right now? Uh, well, I'm uh, actually revising my book on addiction and change. Uh, oh, cool. And uh, we'll be doing that uh, over the next year. Uh, just did the contract for that. And then, um, you know, Mary Velasquez and I and a couple of the colleagues are revising the group therapy manual for treatment. Um, and then I'm doing a lot of training in the community, working with people in the community to um, build their capacity to, to work on this change process, teach them about the change process and teach them how to kind of use that in their, in their practices. That's great. Really busy. I am I am a little busy, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm sure it's very rewarding. You're going to have to keep me updated on all your new books and everything. Okay. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the show. 
For more information about this podcast, please go to newbooksandalcoholdrugsintoxicants.com. And please feel free to rate us on iTunes. Thank you.